ברוך השם, you're a bad Jew. שלום. You're listening to Bad Jew, and with me today is Jason Cement's Flamingo, and also Jason Cement. Jason, welcome to the podcast today. How are you doing today? Happy to be here, for sure. Well, I'm, I'm blessed to know you, and I feel very grateful that you agreed to be on this podcast. And of course, for those who are not watching, who are listening on Apple Podcasts and Spotify and all the other listening platforms out there, there's this adorable Flamingo right behind Jason Cement's head. For those who are on YouTube, you know exactly what I'm talking about. But Jason, you know, outside of your eclectic taste in art, we're also going to be talking about why the Shema matters. We know it's this integral part of Judaism, but why? Before right. we get to that, Jason, we're going to give you the Bad Jew Challenge. The Bad Jew Challenge is tell your life story in four minutes. Are you ready? I am ready. All right. Echad, Shtayim, Shalosh. Four minutes is a long time. Okay, so... I grew up in Miami Beach. I have two brothers. We all grew up modern Orthodox. We didn't know what that meant until we got older, but we were we didn't drive on Shabbat. We went to synagogue, put on tefillin every day when we had from our bar mitzvah age. Uh, mostly ate kosher, I would say, because we would go out to restaurants. I think they call it 1950s style. So we would go to the fish restaurant on Thursday nights and other places where when I was 17 and I studied abroad for a year, I came home and realized I'm not doing that anymore. So I, I was the first and my older brother, he stayed the same. Then my younger brother, he went to his year in Israel. He came home and he's like, I'm not doing that anymore either. And it's just trying to be more consistent with the system, if you will. And so I went to Hebrew school growing up. I was involved in Jewish youth uh, in NCSY and B'nai Kiva. And I'd say most of my circle was orthodox kids except in my own grade a lot of the kids were actually not orthodox so i was always exposed to being outside the bubble if you will and then i when i was 17 i went to israel for a year to study in a yeshiva uh, it was called the best meal in town that was the acronym for bmt i then went to yu for college became an accountant worked for one of the top firms in the country i was the second religious guy they had hired so that was pretty cool and I actually knew the first guy he was i his brother was my counselor in camp so i went to orthodox camp for i think six or seven summers seven summers all the way up to being at count a cit and then so i came i went to college i would did the cpa thing uh quit that after getting my cpa then i went to fordham law school worked as uh got past the bar walked into court and said, I'm not going to do this right now. And I started a business. But right before all of that, I, uh, my father, this is a cool story. He made up a phony will when, when his mother died, when my grandmother died. And the will said that all the grandkids inherited $1,000 to spend in Israel. It's a wild story. So we all went to Israel for Sukkot the year after my grandmother died. And the second day I was there, I met a girl in an apartment and she was living in New York and she was living in a building I was moving into when I came home from New York. So we barely dated. After six weeks, we uh, booked a hall. We told her mother to book a hall and we got married within a year after meeting. <laughs> wow. and, uh, and that was during law school. So pretty wild. I worked during law school for a, a, a one of the hugest manufacturers in Asia. My first day on the job was on a plane to Sri Lanka. I lived there for two weeks. 
I was also in Hong Kong, came home, lived there for another two weeks in Sri Lanka, worked for him in law school. And that got me into the road of being an entrepreneur. So when I finished law school, I started a business, built my first website called magmall.com or Magazine Mall, sold magazine subscriptions all over the country. I was doing search engine optimization in 1997 when the word barely existed. Worked with big clients like Google and Firestone and Goodyear and The Gap, and they were all buying magazines from my company. 2003, I bought the software company that ran my website. So now I own an e-commerce platform with a couple of guys. And then in 2005, started my agency, called, which was called LA Design. We rebranded as Get Visible in 2016. I wrote a couple of books. And uh, one of them is called I Need More Clients. It was a bestseller on Amazon. Bottom line is I run an agency with my partner, Michael, my business partner, Michael. And uh, we've got, I think, 16 employees. Just hired another one yesterday and, and another one tomorrow. We're hiring. And that's my story. Wow. Jason, you utilize that to the T. Great job on your four-minute story. That was awesome. First of all, I want to say what a, what a beautiful story about the fake will and how that ended up leading you to marrying your wife. I got to say that's very beshert. That's very yes. meant to be. I love that. And then the next thing as well, I'm actually really curious about this. What in, you mentioned earlier on in your life, you know, you in your specific grade in Orthodox school that you were exposed to other kids that were not as Jewish that 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 practiced Judaism a different way than you did. Was that good for you? Do you think that that was healthy for you to experience that? Yeah, the hard part was really Shabbat because none of the kids live near me. So wow. it made Shabbat, I'd have to go out of my way to be social with kids that were either much older or really much older. And so that made it a little peculiar, but I'm not a judgmental type of guy in that sense. So I think it was good to be exposed to all walks of life. It's just the, the school that I went to was known for taking in kids that were not homogenous, let's say. And I think that's a good thing. Yeah, I think so too. And I, I will say that I asked that question specifically with the intent that that's really what this podcast Bad Jew is about. It's right. about the exposure of one style of Judaism to another style of Judaism. It's the acceptance that we all practice Judaism in a different way, and yet that somehow unites us, and it's a really beautiful thing. And I wanted to hear that from the horse's mouth as well. So I think that's really wonderful. Flamingo's mouth. For the yeah. flamingo's mouth. Excuse me. Excuse me. So with that, Jason... I wanted to ask you, this the, the subject of this episode, what's so important about the Shema? What is the Shema? Let's start there. So first of all, it's in the Torah. So that's the first thing. It's in the Bible. The the, the paragraphs are there. That Funny enough that the three paragraphs of the Shema and the beginning part are not in the same places in the Torah. So the rabbis put them together as one long universal prayer, but they don't actually get printed together. Not that I'm a scholar here. It's just these are sort of basic things anybody could figure out if they look. And my earliest memory of Shema is I think a lot of kids and adults, if they think about their childhood, is you go to sleep at night and your parents will say Shema with you. It's like the first prayer that you seem to learn, at least in, in my world. It's the first prayer that I remember. And I have this vivid memory of the story of Samson and Delilah from the Bible. You know, he's the guy who grows his hair long. And they try to figure out he's all powerful because he doesn't cut his hair because he's foretold from before birth he's going to be a nazir a, a nazir so he can't drink wine and he can't cut his hair so the, at the end of the story is his wife delilah betrays him to the philistines and they cut his hair take away his strength 
And the way and my father would, he would come in on Shabbat and he would tell us scary stories. That was one of them. It's a very scary story because <laughs> Samson was, you know, he was like the modern day, uh, the Hulk type of guy. And he did a lot of killing and of the bad people, let's say, in the Bible. And so at the end of the story, he's, I think, tied into a uh, Philistine temple, the way the story was told. And he's holding on to the pillars. And the way my dad would tell the story is at the end of his life, they're going to kill him. He says the Shema. And then he brings the whole Philistine temple down and kills everybody, including himself. I don't I don't remember if that was the case, but I remember that the Shema was, and in the Talmud, they talk about that it's, it's, I think it's in the Talmud that it's sort of the last thing you want to say before you die, because what is the Shema? The Shema is the declaration that God is one. God is the God of the Jewish people. He's our God. And it, it, it takes away from the idea of a pantheism where there's multiple gods. It's like the ultimate declaration of your fealty to God as creator in the beginning of time who's here today. So it means a lot of things, but it's in a very short little sentence. Yeah. And it's, it's first of all, so it's, it's fascinating that, first of all, the Shema is actually in different paragraphs in different parts of the Torah, but rabbis put it together. So the Shema, for, for clarity's sake, is actually a man-made product of Judaism. Is that correct? Well, it's not man-made, meaning it's a, the prayer system is something Man that we put together. So the- right. Some of the prayers are man-made, if you will, like Ashrei, uh, not Ashrei, but some of the prayers are just, they don't come from the Bible. They don't come from the Psalms or Tehillim. They were actually right. just written. Like the Friday night davening, some of the, like the Chododi, which is a big singing song, that was written. But okay. the Shema is not, we didn't create it. It was there. We just put it together and said, these pieces fit together. This becomes the declaration. Right. No, but I meant more, I guess, more accurately, man-curated right? It's, it's all in the Torah. Yeah. We put it, we put it together and we're able to create a prayer off of that. I think divinely inspired. So I wouldn't say we just did it. I think okay. the, 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 the idea would be that when Moses gets the Torah at Sinai and he's up there for 40 days and he's learning everything, what's written in the Torah is only a part of the conversation. There's things that were transmitted orally that, came i mean that's the tradition because there's too many things that are written in the torah we don't know what that means like we we, we would put on tefillin or we use a kosher knife we don't know what those laws are they're not written but there's conversations that happened it's called the oral tradition that happens outside of the written stuff right and that seems like it's man-made it might be divinely inspired right but that's man-made is it not i think man-made is a tough thing so man-made to me sounds like we created it on our own the fact is that there's a tradition that passed from Moses, which includes teaching us prayer, part of it. I don't know how much of the prayer goes back to, to the revelation at Sinai part, but the, the idea of wearing tefillin is not something that we created. That's a tradition that was passed down from the original creation. It's just the notes are in the Torah. Like you should put on this thing called tefillin, totafot, but totafot, that's the right word. But mm -hmm. the point is, is that we don't exactly know what it means, but somebody had to know. They didn't just create it. Right. Okay. okay. So, I'm, so you're saying that maybe that that is a marker for what is man-made versus uh, made by God, right? If you're able to track something all the way back to the Torah and it's not actually fully described in the Torah what that thing is, but you know that it exists because of oral tradition, 
That right. is how you can tell something is God made, if you will. Right, right. That's God actually, transmitted. I think that's the better word. Fascinating. Okay, so God yeah. transmitted. And Listen, by the way, this is a really big deal because I think when you talk about people's belief, right, we, we can't know God. We can only believe in him because once we knew him, it wouldn't be free will anymore. And that's sort of the foundation of we're going to talk about with the Shema. The foundation of our creation is God gave us choice. So the point being that in order to have choice, you have to have doubt. And so therefore, one of the doubts that exists, because if you know absolute truth, you don't really have a choice anymore. You know what the right and wrong is. So there has to be doubt built into the fabric of creation. One of those doubts that exists is, did God transmit everything or did we make it up? That's a very big doubt. I hear it all the time. Right? So therefore, it's a, it's the only uh, answer is a belief system. I believe more that God transmitted it or I don't believe it. And your practice might be similar because you might say, I don't know what my belief system is, but I like the system, so I'm going to practice it. And the rabbis have a formula for that. They say, the more you do, the more you will come to believe and understand. So it's okay. not necessarily the belief comes first, but it's just important to articulate them. So it's not man-made. It's in the Torah. It's God transmitted, as you said, right? Yeah. And that's all based on the fact that it's said that we should do it, but it is, um, it is, you know, not necessarily defined. It's just, we know it from old tradition. That's, we know it is God trans transmitted. Right. Right. So then being said, the Torah, the, sorry, specifically the Shema, it, ha it is a commandment in itself. It's been described as the mission statement of Judaism. Right. And it says to do these things, uh, that is what you'll, this is how you'll be able to acquire you know, good deeds in life and mitzvot. And you'll also, right. be, specifically, it talks about receiving rain and also having uh, water for your crops and oil um, and things like that. So these are, you know, really a, a important, essential, you know, gifts that we would receive. I imagine as time has gone on that these literal gifts are also kind of metaphors for much bigger things. You know, we're not obviously not only going to eat bread in life, we're also going to enjoy other kinds of food as well. Correct. And wine in 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 wine and oil are the are aren't the only ways to Correct. you know consume other products. So it's very symbolic. But what about that? How how does that translate to free will? It doesn't feel really feel like free will if I'm dangling a carrot above someone, incentivizing them to say, "Hey, listen, if you believe in me, I'll give you these things." All so right, how does that? Back, free will? Let's step back. It's a good question. Let's step yeah. back. That I, was the question I was trying to ask, and I couldn't. Free will is a big deal, but I, yeah. I, I'll, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, let's blow up the internet. I'm gonna give you a, uh, uh, I'm gonna give you something, which is why we even wanted to have this conversation. Yeah. If you look at the first paragraph of the Shema, where it says "Ve'ahavta," you should love God, Hashem Elokecha, right? And you should love Him with your heart, with your soul, with your stuff. I mean, those are the traditional, or your might. Those are the traditional uh, explanations, and we, well, we might have different explanations for that, but there are different ways to love God. We can agree on that. And it says you should teach your children all these commandments that I've given you. In the first paragraph, it says all they teach them when you get up in the morning, teach them when they go to sleep at night, which is why we say Shema with our kids at night when they're growing up to learn that that's the last thing you should do before you go to sleep. And at the end of the first paragraph, it says, and you should put on your tefillin on your arm, on your head, and you should put a mezuzah on the door. And the mezuzah actually has the Shema inside and the tefillin has it inside also. That's right. It finishes the paragraph. So here's a question. What if you don't do it? Life goes on. The world keeps spinning. Well, I'm saying in the first paragraph, 
What's the consequence if you don't do any of that stuff? It says you will not receive the very benefit. No, it doesn't say that. What does it say? First paragraph doesn't say anything. This is a profound point. In the first paragraph, it just says, love God and teach your children about the commandments. And here's three specific commandments you have to do. Put on the tefillin, let's say, uh, let's, let's say it's one. You put it on the head and put it on the, on, the, on the heart and put on the mezuzah. But it never says anything about what happens if you don't do it. Okay. Okay, so from the later on, it does, doesn't it? Later on, doesn't it? Right, say... We're going to get to that. But remember, yeah. I said to you that there's a parallel between the Shema and the creation story. In the first creation story of man, six days God creates the world. He tells man only two things in that creation story. Humanity. I don't want to say man. Humanity, okay? He says to the first human being, he says, I want you to procreate and have children and i want you to manage the world and then he finishes the sixth day and he goes he native mode this is an awesome day everything is good and then he goes and tells the story about shabbat and resting the seventh day what happens on the first creation story if man does not procreate and man does not manage the world what's the consequence i, the, the, I actually don't know it there, is say there is there is no there isn't there, right so if you now look at the first, but what, what, what would you agree that humanity owes God up until the end of the first story? Does he, does that person owe God anything? I guess if God directly gave life to Adam, I suppose Adam should find some gratitude and perfect thanks. Right. Perfect. So, okay. So let's assume, let's, let's say that gratitude is the other side of coin, the other side of the coin of love. Okay. Okay. Let's say that they are conjoined together like Siamese twins. All right. So in the first paragraph of the Shema, you learn about the commandments. You learn about the world. You learn about you learn about your house because you got to put a mezuzah. You learn about the body because you got to put the tefillin on there. Okay. So, but what God doesn't give you yet is any consequence. He's just teaching you about love, in the same of relationships, of gratitude and relationships. That's all you have in the first story is a relationship with God that he's saying to you, look, I'm going to take care of everything except you just have to procreate and manage the world. Everything else I've done for you. I created it all. He needs Tov Ma'od. And this is the first profound move, which is when he says he needs Tov Ma'od and finishes the sixth day off and Ma'od is that same word as in the Shema. Okay. There's this notion that God created the world. And he said, okay, man, you're in charge now. You take the next step. You're my partner in creation. So what God gave us is all the potential in the world. It's our job to actualize it. So when he says, ma'od, ma'od means here is all this goodness in its fullest potential. And what's the first thing he does after he says that? He rests. He's done. And he goes into the Sabbath. And what's the one thing you can't do on the, on the Sabbath? If can't you, work. You can't work. You can't actualize anything. You can't create. So the Sabbath is the first thing that man walks into after the sixth day is a world with only potential to think about. Right? So he can't okay. do anything. The only thing he can do is he can love. He can have gratitude. And he can think about how to actualize his potential and sort of make a plan for it in a way but not do anything about it yet. He can revel and enjoy this period of grace, if you will, 
where there's no demand placed on him to do anything. The demand is just to be on him to be and to, and to think and to love and to express himself through that lens, okay? I'm gonna call it lots of passion that are unrestrained because there's no consequence. It doesn't exist yet. You follow me so far? Yeah, no, so I guess, yeah, in that sense, there is free will, which then here comes the question, this now is more about free will than anything. Why do good? Right now we're going to go to the set. Now we go to the second story. You go to the second paragraph of Shema, and that's where you you're now in in the first story. You don't have free will yet because he basically that you don't have it. You don't have a. There's no consequence if you don't choose the right choice because he hasn't given it to you yet. He's given you a heart that's unrestrained. He's given you a, a world where you're you're an animal being, like all passion with no boundaries. Okay. Okay. Now you get to the second story, and in the second story, you go to the seventh verse of the second paragraph, and I'm really not a scholar. I just remember this one. And it <laughs> says, he blew into the nostrils, the neshama, the soul, nishmat, right? And it says, nishmat chayim, something like that. And it says, So it says that all of a sudden now man gets this thing called Nefesh Chaya. And there's a great trans translator named Onkelis, and he defines the word as Mamamala. I think that's the word, which means man got the power of speech. And speech comes with intellect. They're sort of interchangeable. So, so what was the second creation of man? It's where God gave him an intellect. And then he starts telling him all the things he can't do. You can't eat from this tree. You can't eat from that tree. Like he just introduces man to consequence. It's the okay. first time he's telling him he can do one thing, but he can't do something else, which in the world we're talking about is now free free will. He basically said, I'm not going to force you. I'm giving you the choice. You can either, you can eat everything you want, but you can't do this. And which of course leads to, you know, Adam eating from the apple and then his wife eating from the apple. But the point is, is that that's the introduction of consequence. We can call it free will, but the point is you can't have free will without a consequence. Okay. Does that make sense? Because if I, feel no like I, I, I feel like I want to ask questions, but those questions would lead to an, a whole different episode. I, I, I right. don't I don't understand how we're still talking about the Shema, though. I'm going to tell you right now. Go to the second paragraph of Shema. Okay. What happens there? The first beginning, he says, If you listen to all these commands and you do them, I'm going to bring the rain. I'm going to give you the bounty. I'm going to give you, you know... You're going to have the meat. Everything's going to work. But if you don't, but if you don't listen, you're going to have starvation. You're going to have hunger. You're going to have drought. Basically, consequence. I'm going to kick you out of the garden. That's really what he's saying. Hmm. You see? So right now, second paragraph of Shema directly parallels the second creation story where God introduces man and says, oh, I'm now going to restrain your passions by giving you something called the mind, which has in intellectual power. And with the mind comes the decisions and choices that you have to make. And the first thing I'm telling you about is the tree. This tree you can have, this tree you can't have. In the Shema, he's basically saying, it's not the tree, I'm giving you mitzvot. So it's, it's fascinating. Yeah, it, it's fascinating because it of all the things that it could possibly remind me of, this is the one thing it reminded me of was, Jason, I don't, I don't know if you knew this. Maybe a few of my listeners know this. I, I'm not quite sure. But um, 
one of my previous jobs, I used to work at Dave and Buster's in Hollywood, believe it or not. And actually, fun yeah. fact, there were a lot of Jews that came. There are a lot of Orthodox Jews that would come in and out of Dave my and Buster's. My kid's bar mitzvah was at Dave and Buster's. How about oh, that? Oh, <laughs> look at that. So I remember on a similar note, we had a, we had difficult customers as as all as sure. all restaurants do. And uh, we had a manager give us a workshop on how to deal uh, in difficult, how to deal with difficult customers. And the end conclusion was to always call the manager specifically to say this phrase that, listen, it's not that the customer is always right. It's that the customer always has the right to be wrong. Okay. So when, I heard, when I heard that for the first time, I was really confused by that. To me, that almost sounds like Torah study because you're saying, yeah, here is the Garden of Eden, right? Here are these customs that you must follow that would make you a Jew. By not following them, you have the right to be wrong. You have the right to not be doing this. So it's it's still allowing for free will, but just giving the understanding that there's going to be a consequence for those actions. Well, the that, first am, I, am I echoing that correctly? Well, the first consequence is man got kicked out of the garden. Right. Right. So God's allowing in creation. You can get kicked out. So then is the Shema a symbolic retelling of the Garden of Eden? I think it ties directly into it because it's reminding you that your overall mission, the, the commandments that you get, they're not, they have value in and of themselves, but there's a purpose for them, which is to connect you to God. And the first thing God tells you is the creation story. So everything should come back to that story to say, well, what's my mission on this earth? My mission on this earth is to, and, and you express it through the Shema, when you say, you say, is your heart. I love God with my heart. I'm going to say that's the first story. I'm going to love God with all my unrestrained passion. Okay. That's live Nefesh, again, goes back to that seventh verse in the second chapter where he, God creates man and he gives him intellect. So you say with the tefillin also here, you say, I'm going to love God with all the choices that I make and all my intellectual ability, which means everybody, any ability. It doesn't mean smarter people love God more. Whatever right. ability you have, you're going to And But the last one's the kicker. I'm going to love God with all my potential because it's the same word that God used at the end of the sixth day. He goes, Tov me'od, you say me'odech, it's the same word. You say, I'm going to love God, again, at every level of that you're capable. I give it all over to my relationship with God. Okay, so then tying this into tefillin. So one thing I do as well, as, you know, despite the album art of this podcast, people see me wearing the tefillin incorrectly or the tefillin falling off my head, however you want to interpret that. Right? That's just the bad Jew brand, right? And uh, trust me, I know how to wear tefillin. I, I, yeah. I, I am a trained professional, but I know how to wear tefillin, okay? And I know that the tefillin on your left arm yeah. faces your, your weaker arm. Depends which, okay. if you're the right. weaker arm. Right. That's right. Yeah. So the weaker arm, right? In this case, it's my left arm. Yeah. It faces my heart. So that's correct. With all my heart. There's the tefillin on my head on the Roche, which is all of my right. intellect, right? And then you said the potential. With That's with the last one. Meodech is not your tefillin. Meodech is just that's the last thing you say in the Shema. You could parallel it to the mezuzah if you want to keep the, uh, the, 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 what do you call it? The, um, syllogism going, if you will. Right. But couldn't it be the hand part of it? Cause you know, you, there's, there's three steps to wrapping to fill in. First you do the arm, you wrap, yeah. uh, you wrap the shin on your bicep and then you do yeah. seven 
uh, seven uh, re re revolutions around your forearm. Then you put right. the roach on your head, right? So you've created the heart. You've created yeah. the intellect. Right. But when it comes to potential, we still have to wrap the hand. Couldn't the hand be the very thing that helps build things? As in the hand is what makes potential reality? It, it definitely could. The only reason that I didn't go that route is because when I'm reading the Shema, you have three sentences. It says, put the thing on your hand, right? You have you have on your arm. Then it says on your eyes. And then it says write a mezuzah to put on your doorpost. So meaning there's three verses in Shema. I had to connect the third thing of the mezuzah. That's the meodecha. That's your potential. The reason I think that that works is because the when you think of, of, of the three forefathers, for example, I'm still working this out. You think about Jacob and, and Abraham and Isaac, each one of them represents one of these three things too. Avraham is known as the man who had four doors on his tent and he loved everybody. So he's the heart. He's the heart. Isaac is the one who made the ultimate choice to go up on the on the mountain to be sacrificed. Like he is literally had the choice. He's the Yaqidah. You know, he's the one that went up on uh, to, to be tied up. In the, and of course, God doesn't let Abraham kill him. Wait, wait, is that potential or is that? Is no, that he's the choice because he made the ultimate choice to, to right. submit to God. Right. Right. And then Yaakov, we call ourselves Beit, ya Beit Yisrael, right? B'nai Yisrael, the house of the house of Jacob, right? So Jacob is really the, un, is the potential in Judaism that gets actualized. We could go for a long time in it, but just in terms of the parallel, I think the idea of a home is really important because as a matter of fact, last week in the Torah, we read the verse that says, God just finishes revelation. Moses, Moses comes down and he's got the, uh, his face mask now because he's all filled with radiance. And the first thing he does is he starts telling, he gathers the people and he says, don't light a fire in your home. It's the first thing he says in, 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 in the, in the, in the, uh, in the Parsha. So the question is, why doesn't he say, don't light a fire on, on Shabbat? I mean, don't light a fire on the Sabbath in your home. Why doesn't he say, just don't light a fire? Because the home represents the inner world and the outer world, what you do inside and what you do outside. It's a complete, it's the completion of potential. I mean, you're actualizing everything that God has given you. And, and the reason he tells you don't do it inside is because even when no one's watching, God's watching. So Moses is giving them that lesson early on when he just comes down that don't think you're hiding. You can, you know, fool anybody, but that's a side point. But the real key, what you asked me in the beginning is I think that the, the Shema and the Shema is the first topic that's covered in the, in the Mishnah and in the Talmud is the requirement to say Shema every day, twice a day. Like that's literally right. the first topic more than loving your parents and all the 10 commandments. It first says, the first topic is love Shema because I think Shema is the heart of what it means to be. It's more than just being a Jew. It's to be a member of humanity that acknowledges creation by God. This is the mandate, if you will, to express that gratitude. And also the, it's not just the gratitude, it's the servitude. I think the Shema and the creation story are layered and there's, hints to this because I can give you one last thing. If you if you look at the prayer on at night that we pray in the night service, the first paragraph of the night service is all about the constellations in the sky and it's about light and dark and the divisions between day and night. There's nothing in there about the commandments. It's all about nature, which is the first story of creation. Hmm. And if you look at the second paragraph, it's all about the commandments. 
has nothing to do with nature. So you start seeing these parallels of the, the first creation story, which is not commandment based. It's just, it, it's, it's gratitude and love without limit. And then you see the commandedness and you have all these parallels are experienced in other prayer sequences. The first two paragraphs of the of the silent Amidah, it's it's just reversed. The first paragraph is all about the transmission of the commandments from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob and to your kids and their kids and all of that. The second paragraph is all about the supernatural God with no commandments in there. And you start seeing these patterns over and over and like, holy, I was about to say a bad word, but you see it and you yeah. can't unsee it. That's the thing. I've seen it now and I'm stuck. I can't unsee it anymore. Wow, it's beautiful. Well, Jason, let me ask you this. Let's let's pretend I'm a I'm a, a YJP, a young Jewish professional who yeah. listened to this entire episode and really got inspired by what you had to say in this importance, this connection to the creation story. Right. What's a great way for a YJP like me to embrace the importance of the Shema as a beginner? I think it's so simple, actually. And by the way, Shabbat's really connected because remember, there's three things here. Right. There's the heart, the mind, and the potential. You have the first story and the second story, and in between is the Shabbat story. Right. And that's your potential there. So you can't you can't do the other two without bringing Sabbath in because that's literally the first thing that Moses talks about when he comes. Okay, then I'll then I'll leave that mistake. The, okay, the, the simple answer <laughs> for the YJP. And the person who's questioning, and I'm still questioning plenty of things. I still think I'm a modern day Karaite, so I'm going to go to hell for a different reason. But I think the easiest thing is if if you start, I don't say buying it, it's the wrong word. If this speaks to you, that's a better way of putting it. Then it's so simple. You literally twice a day, you wake up in the morning and you commit yourself and you say, it's almost like uh, Stuart Smalley from Saturday Night Live. This is before your time, but he used to have his, his sayings. He would look into the mirror and he would pump himself up. So it's it's really saying with intent, and it takes 30 seconds. You say the prayer and you say, you know what? I want to commit myself to making, to, to giving people love. I want to be a giver, okay? I want, and, and the, I want to be a beacon for the giving because if you give, it comes back. So you, you get that. I want to be a good maker. I want to make the right choices. Everybody defines right differently, but at least to know that there's some path to find that it doesn't just come from you. It's got to come from somewhere else to understand what right is. You have to have a, I call them putting people on pedestals, put people around you, surround yourself with people on pedestals. You start making better choices. So I like that. Okay. That's, that's number two. And number three is understand that everybody has a different potential. Some people are gifted in one thing and other things, and, and you're going to take that potential and channel it in the right way. And you, you make that commitment every day and you're reminding yourself that, and this is the most serious point is that it, your potential is God given. That's the key. It's like when you hear famous people that are famous because they have a skill set, like a, a LeBron James from basketball, or you hear Elton John, what makes me sad is when people forget that God gave them the talent. Obviously you have to believe in God, but if you don't believe in God, different conversation. But I mean, if, 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 if you think you were just selected like randomly from DNA to get those kinds of talents, it sort of diminishes, I think the, the response not responsibility, the opportunity you have to take something and make more out of it. So I think for the YJP, it's very simple. 
you wake up every day, you go to sleep every night, and you have an accounting at night for your day. Say, did I deliver? Can I do better tomorrow? I like that. I think anyone can access that. It doesn't matter if you're making $15 an hour or $1,500 an hour. It's your potential that you have to measure for yourself. Hmm. Does that make sense? I like, I like that a lot. I like that a lot. On a similar note, by the way, you know, I, I myself am a, a beginner, a total novice when it comes to my prayer studies. So this was um, an advance of my prayer study here, which is really exciting for me. Today, I was literally at, I stopped by at Moyes Fireplace, which is a venue out in Pico Robertson area. And I met up with a rabbi named Rabbi Yitz Jacobs. And uh, Rabbi Yitz Jacobs from Aish, I had met him a couple of weeks ago, and he offered to give me a little prayer study, basically just going over his stuff. I wanted to specifically learn about some of the prayers because I do a morning routine right now. And a great piece of advice for beginners that he gave as well is to start with the English translations first. Don't sure. Hebrew. Don't worry about the 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 actual <laughs> practice of you know speaking in in the in the dialect uh, of our people. Just for now, focus on building the relationship with that prayer itself. So that way, when you do learn Hebrew, when you are able to incorporate that, you can really build a relationship with it. So for me, I think that that makes the most sense. 100%. Jason, should someone want to reach out and get a hold of you, what is the best way to get in touch? They can go to, well, Get Visible is my company with my partner, so that's easy. And I'm very reachable. You can find me online, especially if you look on Google, you'll see all these videos of me with my tefillin because I give a Sunday morning three-minute uh, Devar Torah every week, every every Sunday after show. I have a lot of those out there. They, you can find me easy. Yeah. Wonderful. Jason, thank you again so much for being on the Bad Jew podcast. This really was uh, a fun and enlightening interview for me. And I, I hope you didn't mind the pushback that I gave you. I had to ask the questions. I had to, I had to challenge you, but you handled it with grace. This was a really wonderful interview. Till next time. Thanks so much. Awesome.